era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. Now we're more famous for the seafood that's eating us. We operate in five regions around the world where we go into some of the darkest places on the planet to identify where children particularly are being trafficked. Hi Fred, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. What a week it's been. And it we're has. both back in the same studio. I was in Indeed. Perth well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here, Jim. Yes. It's always a pleasure to have you back, Fred. Yeah. Oh, thank you. How is the West, by the way? Uh, well, the sun still sets over in the West, over the Indian Ocean. It's always a pleasant way to finish the day. But uh, other than that, I mean, well, nothing's changed over there. Nothing ever does. <laughs> Maybe that's what makes it such a good place. Anyway. Welcome back to the Commonwealth, by the way, to all our <laughs> listeners in the West. Yeah, After well, your I mean, brief sojourn. I had a, had a few days of listening to people in the West complaining about how much GST we take from them, but uh, maybe we'll cover that <laughs> some other time. But uh, speaking of Perth, Perth is involved in my lesson of the week. What is your lesson of the week? Well, Tell my me. lesson of the week is to not or to avoid flying in Australia. Because our airlines, particularly Qantas, have just absolutely dropped the ball in this wide brown land. We uh, Australians rely on flying uh, pretty much as as much as uh, Americans do. You know, trying to get across a big country, and we don't have a, a feasible rail alternative. Um, and uh, lately, uh, our airlines have been absolutely useless. Eighty-eight cent Charles our chief technical employee, to Perth today to shoot Dave Pillow's Church and State Conference live for ADHTV. He left this morning with a good five-hour buffer in case uh, of a flight delay to get there in time to start the broadcast. Um, you know, envisaging that there might be a flight delay, inevitably there was. He spent a couple of hours on the tarmac before the plane actually taxied back to the terminal because of some fault with the plane and we had to scramble to get him on a virgin flight instead and we still don't know if he's going to land on time that's uh that's life in australia during the 21st century four or five years ago things like this hardly ever occurred nick mm. planes took off on time and landed on time who knew but <laughs> not anymore Qantas is now the most complained about corporation in the nation and get this next week it is forecast to announce a $2.4 billion annual profit. But Good now, on them. Well, yeah, yeah, that's our money. That, I, mean, <laughs> I think I've paid who, most of that, actually. Well, who knew there was uh, who knew there was money to be made in, in not getting planes off the ground? But anyway, that's not the only unpleasant thing about Qantas, in my opinion. Nobody at Qantas seems to have noticed the contradiction that happens every time one of their planes touches down in Australia. First, the passengers are forced to endure a welcome to country, but that is followed by that nauseatingly schmaltzy jingle I still call Australia home. It doesn't make sense, Nick. How can you still call Australia home when it belongs to the local elders past, present, uh, present and emerging? Exactly. That clearly needs to be reworded. I still call Australia their home. <laughs> uh, I'm a mere invader yes. on this land. Um, there was a nice thing about it. I caught a Qantas flight internationally earlier in the year, and that was the best Qantas flight I've had for a long time, only because when we landed at Singapore, there was no welcome to country. Uh, I think there's a slightly different welcome to country in Singapore, isn't it? Yeah, you know? well, I mean, it's awfully racist of them, really. I mean, why, why, why didn't we uh, pay, uh, pay... Why didn't Qantas pay their respects to the eldest past president... And emerging in Singapore, that's... Uh... Yeah, and I think this idea of making the city names, in putting the city names in up on the, the destination boards at the airport in uh, in some kind of Aboriginal language is, is enormously confusing if you're rushing yeah. to get a flight. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. It's, it's like New Zealand, you know, you're going to have to learn another language. You're going to have to be bilingual. It's ridiculous. Uh, well, I mean, tourists would be, would be freaking out, you know, thinking they've booked themselves onto the wrong flight. But yeah. there's, oh, there's another story to do with um, with Qantas. Ah, oh, our very own Hunter Biden story. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Prime Minister's son Nathan has managed him to get himself membership of the Qantas Chairman's Lounge. It's a coincidence that this came so soon after the government blocked an application from Qatar Airways. 
to increase its flights into Australia, which naturally benefited uh, Qantas. Uh, increased competition would have made flights cheaper for ordinary Australians, but who in Canberra cares about that, Nick? Well, this is definitely our, our hunter. What is the Prime Minister's son's name, Nathan. by the way? Nathan. Nathan. He's 23 years old. He's a student. Well, let's call him Hunter. Hunter yeah. Albanese <laughs> uh, taking taking uh, the, the ticket for the Chairman's Lounge. Taking the, the, what is it? The Queen's Shilling or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I notice he's, he's got a history of this. He accepted a Lakers shirt from Shaquille O'Neal when he was over last year. That was when, you remember, the Prime Minister decided to make Shaquille O'Neal the ambassador for The Voice, right. the guy's first visit to Australia, but because he was black, so that qualified him to be the ambassador for The Voice. <laughs> of course, yes. And his son got... So I think he needs to be careful. I mean, not quite in the Hunter Biden league yet. Well, let's just wait. Let's see if he gets a seat on the Shall we? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if he if he has no experience or knowledge about Ukraine or or the gas industry. Maybe he's a walk up start for a seat on Burisma. Yeah. Well, I should be refusing the invitation to the Chairman's Lounge next. If they were they to offer it, I would refuse it on principle. I think, and I'm sure you would too. Yes. Not that there's any chance of us getting it, of course. No. Did you, what was your lesson of the week, Nick? My lesson of the week is it's hotter than you think. It's uh, apparently, as you had in that clip at the very beginning of the show, it's global boiling. Yes. And I've got some questions to ask you. You know, I'm not, I'm not one really to, to go any much near the sea, but it, in the era of global boil, boiling, it must be, surfing must be pretty... Well, that's one of the unexplained or, or unappreciated uh, un, un, uh, uh, benefits of global warming because the best, um, the best surf conditions are created by coral reefs and coral reefs grow in warm water. So if if the ocean does warm up, and I certainly <laughs> hope it does, we'll get really good coral reefs maybe off Sydney. Yeah, what do you think of an asbestos? I want, I want asp- to fly to Indonesia to, uh, to get the best waves in the world. What about an asbestos wetsuit so you can <laughs> prevent yourself getting scalded That's in the water? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the boiling point of seawater is about 105 degrees, isn't it? It's higher than 100 degrees because oh, of the salt content. Okay. So uh, yeah, yeah. Well, must be bloody hot out there. That's all I can say, Fred. Well, speaking of, of global boiling, let's go to that first grab. This, this grab sort of dominated the news in the first part of the week. It's uh, Antonio Guterres, uh, the um, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, turning up the heat on the climate. As it though. were. <laughs> Let's have a listen. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Nick, when do people get tired of this catastrophe? Just goes around in circles, doesn't it? I mean, we did. We gave away global warming for a bit, didn't we? Because we then went into climate change, so that they could argue that uh, you know there was a, a lot of stuff. Remember in the papers around the um, 2006, 2007 warning, warning that we would never see snow again. Our children would never see snow, and it was followed by a number of very heavy uh, winters of snow in New York City. I was in there one year when it was just covered in snow, and suddenly the whole narrative changed. Oh, it's this global. Uh, this is climate change, and yeah. we, we were we were trained to use that. Now we've gone back to uh, the global boiling thing. It it really is. I mean, it surely must have a diminishing effect on certainly any adult who's been around for any length of time. But on the other hand, I mean, there is evidence this really does scare kids, right? It's like the the COVID thing. It's about the whip up the panic, whip up whip up the fear, and then take control. Then you can take extraordinary measures to control this dreadful emergency that you've, you've, you've more or less created in your head. So yeah. there's a serious side to it. I mean, we can laugh at it, but, yeah. but I think... They, well, and, but they've been through so many iterations of this crisis. The only one really, only feasible one left for them would be climate consistency. Mm. They could ring the alarm about how the temperature is actually not changing and maybe that's something to worry about because, as we know, mate, the, the, the climate has always changed. I mean, but I think that the environmental movement is starting to realise that public sentiment is uh, changing on this. So you, you might have noticed the newly appointed head of the UN's Intergovernmental Pal- Panel on Climate Change, 
Jim Skia, I think is, uh, is how you pronounce his name, S-K-E-A. He says, quote, he told, he, this quote is from earlier this week, quote, we should not despair and fall into a state of shock if global temperature increases by 1.5 degrees. If you constantly communicate the message that we are all doomed to extinction, then that paralyzes people and prevents them from taking the necessary steps to get a grip on climate change. Well, I'll take my head off. I ended that sentence at get a grip. But anyway, I've just got to finish the quote. The world won't end if it warms by more than 1.5 degrees. It will, however, (laughs) be a more dangerous world. Now, I think um, Skia is pulling back the veil here and exposing this for the religion that it is, Nick. He is speaking to the faithful when he reassures them that the world won't end, although a lot of them probably still think it will. Anyway, anyone outside this cult knows that life will continue on this planet if the temperature goes up slightly because life on this planet is adaptable and humans are the most adaptable species in history. But the alarmists don't know that. They are busy repackaging the COVID lockdowns when a virus made it too dangerous to go outdoors to a climate lockdown when the heat is making it too too dangerous to go outdoors. (laughs) I mean, these... The, the, the thing that bothers me, Nick, oh, well, actually, let me quote from the New York Times first, because they published a piece just a, a, a week or so ago warning people about the new, uh, new extreme heat that the planet is supposedly experiencing. And in it, it said this, quote, if the air quality is poor, plan to stay indoors as much as possible with the windows closed. If you must be outdoors, consider wearing an N95 mask to help reduce your exposure to toxins. I'm sure you've got a, a few of those lying around the, uh, the house, Nick. It's a terribly depressing message, isn't it? And, and I think, I think this, this man, this chap, Skier, I like the colour of his... Yes. The, I like the colour of his jib. He, 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 he's made that point that you don't want to paralyse people with fear, but that's what's happened. And uh, I know, talking from to uh, a few Gen X people who I occasionally get to talk to, that, that, that there is genuine, um, that they are growing up, or many of the people of that generation are growing up uh, just feeling very gloomy and powerless about the world. You know, and yet it's absurd because they, they are, well, they don't, probably don't realise it, they're growing up in the most, as the most affluent generation ever in, worldwide, but certainly in Australia. I mean, they've, they've no generation before them has ever grown, you know, come into the world with the expectation they would live as long yeah. or as healthy. Yeah. Um, and the technology's there, right? We can do all sorts of things now. And yet they don't feel optimistic about that. And, and yeah. something has changed, and this rhetoric is constantly being driven home that we're facing some catastrophe. It's clearly part of that story, and, and I just think it's cruel cruel to do that we should teach people to be optimistic sure things come along but uh what you know human beings have solved these up to now yeah but every generation every generation wants to be the one at the cusp you know when something momentous is about to happen to the planet which has never happened before well yeah i mean but the generations since generation x i'd probably say are the ones who are at the cutting edge of doom and gloom. I mean, the generations. I meant to say Generation Z, by the way. Sorry, I got yeah, 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 my yeah, my yeah. my uh, initials <laughs> you're, you're wrong. Probably closer to X than. Uh, a bit older than that. Yeah. <laughs> you you be on the cusp. I'm on the cusp. Yeah. I like to call myself Generation yeah. X. But um, you know, well, you know, among we were among the last people to grow up without the internet, um, and. Uh, you know, that sort of optimism and, you know, joie de vivre was, you know, what kept us going. And, you know, the, the education department now uh, in most liberal democracies has um, been overtaken by teachers who are preaching uh, seriously negative and depressing um, mm. uh, view of the world uh, in 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 lieu of a proper education and that's what's uh, that, that you know that's where the, the problem is is starting it's the uh, yeah i despair for anyone who has young kids these days because um you know maybe we should do a show on on the uh one day soon on the burgeoning um 
phenomenon of homeschooling. It's much bigger than most people realise. It, it certainly is. I, I was looking into this some time back, uh, and that is, it is a reaction against the public school system. Uh, the numbers are still relatively small, but it's a, it's an increasing number of people. Yeah. And um, uh, there's quite I know, I know a family in Brisbane, for instance, friends of ours who are, are homeschooling their kids, and it's it's quite interesting. There's quite a community of of families who do that and do it very responsibly. Well, uh, I heard someone talk at a conference recently of his kids who he homeschooled, and it was it, he was a, a deeply Christian conservative dude and he the way he described it mm. he, it he sounded like a hippie i mean he just let his kids pursue the passions that they chose and uh, rather than just sit around goofing off they actually became intensely interested because that's one of the things about childhood you are immensely curious about the things that particularly appeal to you and once you get obsessed with it then you become you know, uh, you're deeply immersed in it with me. It was, yeah, I mean, I, with I, me, it was skateboarding and surfing, so I wasn't. It yeah. wasn't a particularly productive obsession. But uh, but if you are, if you save your kids those eight or so hours a day at school and allow them to pursue the things that they find interesting, <clears throat> the outcome is not as most people would presume. Um, uh, sort of meaningless and uh, directionless. In fact, homeschooled kids become obsessive about in incredibly interesting and productive subjects. Yeah, there's there's some there's some reliable research from the states that, that shows consistently that homeschooled kids uh, have better outcomes. They achieve better results. Now, I'm not not fully convinced by that because clearly, if you're homeschooling, you are a committed parent and you're engaged with your child. That's the whole point and and uh, any any child's going to benefit from that, whether at school or not. But but certainly, the the any suggestion that by not going to school they have worse outcomes educationally is not true. And the ability to socialise is also much better than you think, thanks to this, you know, parents getting together and having group sessions with the kids. So yeah, yeah. I let's visit that on a you know in uh, parting shots somewhere down the track. Let's go to our next grab, um, which pertains to uh, Antonio Guterres's uh, alarming statement a minute ago, but this is from a far more sensible man who actually appears uh, as a regular guest here on ADH. This is Professor Ian Plymer talking about changes to the climate uh, on Earth over a much wider scale. Let's have a listen. Now, in the United States, in the Dust Bowl years of the 1920s and 1930s, it was hotter than now. Those temperatures from that period of time have been amended. They have been pushed down in the record, and that makes it look as if we've had a rise in temperature over time. But if you look at the newspaper reports of that time, then you will get the actual temperatures and not the amended temperatures in the temperature record which is used by the IPCC and others. It was hotter in the 1920s and 1930s. In the medieval warming period a thousand years ago, it was about five degrees warmer than now. It was about three or four degrees warmer than now in the time of Jesus. In Minoan times, it was about five degrees warmer. So if someone asks you, um, is the planet warming or cooling, the only logical answer you can give is yes, because since the time of Jesus, the planet has been cooling. Since the Dark Ages, the planet's been warming. Since the medieval times, the planet's been cooling. Since the Little Ice Age, for some surprising reason, we've been warming since the Little Ice Age. So we've been warming and cooling in cycles. Now I've got to point out, that was from David Flint's uh, Save the Nation here on ADH uh, from Thursday night, which uh, listeners can find on our website, adh.tv. But Nick, that's a that's a pretty reassuring perspective to be to be hearing, isn't it? It is, because David David Flint would remember the medieval warming period. <laughs> I think was as a young before, child. Before or after the referendum? <laughs> on the, on the Look, it, you know, it, this is all this is all well and good, but I, we we go nowhere with this, don't we? I mean, we 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 point out counterfacts, and 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 Ian Plymer is 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 very well read, very well researched. We can throw these around backwards and forwards, but as you say, it's a religion, and it you is, can't yeah. you can't 
argue against somebody's religious faith with facts. It, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, so I kind of I, I, I appreciate hearing uh, Ian Plymer and reading his books, but I kind of think, well, is this actually winning the argument? I, sadly, I think not. I don't, I don't know well, what we do to win the argument. Well, what he's doing, he's released some children's books to try to fight back against the the indoctrination of kids in schools. He's published some books. Yeah, you're right. Look, I don't. I dare say that not everything Plymer says is 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 going to be it's going to be right. It's not like he speaks the truth and others speak falsehoods. But it, it's certainly the case. There is reasonable room for scientific questioning here, and that the idea of a settled science, as we know, is 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 a nonsense. So. You know, it's, we're not getting that scientific debate occurring in any, anything like a free environment, and this is this is worrying. This well, is worrying. as you and I have discussed on a couple of occasions before, we are also surrounded by people who, whether they know it or not, are devotees of the philosophy of scientism, which is the essentially atheist uh, um, ideology that the only knowledge attainable in this world is scientific and everything else is uh, dismissed. So you can't, for example, you can't uh, explain the appreciation you and I have for music. Mm. Nothing transcendental or spiritual actually even exists. So mm. that's, that's, you know, as, as you said before, you know, um, environmentalism has become somewhat of a religion. I've always thought that for us to fight back against that, we have to couch our rebuttal to that in equally religious terms. Because it'll be good. It's a spiritual <laughs> quest. I mean, just to continue that, finish that point. I mean, the the the, the tendency to insist on this uh, faith based argument on climate change goes along with a complete intolerance for opposition. Right? We see cancel culture, and it was a, a wonderful. Um, failed attempt at cancel culture in in the Senate this week when uh, oh. Senator Mick, Nick McKin uh, Nick McKin took uh, McKim, McKim yeah. Nick McKim took it took umbrage at something that Senator Matt Canavan had said and accused him of of um, killing people. Is that yes. right? Well, it called him a sociopath, and he said uh, he also and dismissing. Because he he's a proponent of fossil fuels, he's dismissing the the, uh, the the existential threat of climate change. And he said, "I've been laughing about this all week. We haven't got the grab, but I can give you my best impression of Please. it." Please. He said, "People are dying." <laughs> yes. Me, uh, when I heard that, and, you would have to have a heart of stone not to find that hilarious. Yeah, and and then he turned around and and I was surprised to know this walk wasn't unparliamentary language. He, he said, shut your mouth. That's right. right. He's a, it's a cancel culture instinct yes. from him. He doesn't yeah. want to hear any discordant facts. Well, I think we, we, are, we are living in a better country, Nick, now that we know that shut your mouth and people are doying is now entered into the Hansard. Yeah. I mean, Australia is it, a richer and more prosperous place as a result. It's permissible language in, in the <laughs> Parliament of Can Australia. I you for, you've been in Australia for how long? 40 years? Yeah, uh, 33, yes, give 34. Me, give me your best, best Nick McKim, people are dying, mate. People are dying. <laughs> Not bad. Not, not, not bad. good. Not, no. Well, you know, you've got a bit of work to do there. People are dying. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> anyway, that nasal bit. I, I, reckon, get, I right. recommend listeners have a listen to it and uh, get a good chuckle out of it because, uh, well, people are dying, but not because of climate change. Okay. Now, speaking of people are dying, let's go to the best exchange of the week, in my opinion, Nick. It's between two Pfizer executives and Queensland Senator Jared Rennick who actually has a very fine Australian accent, if you ask me. Yeah. He's a regular guest on ADH. And this is from a Senate committee, committee hearing this week in which uh, Jared really gets these two Pfizer executives' um, backs against the wall. Let's have a listen. And can you explain the process why the vaccine causes myocarditis and pericarditis? I'll take that, Dr Hewitt. Sure. Um, 
based on our clinical trials and pharmacovigilance data, as well as real-world evidence following the distribution now of, of billions of doses of vaccine, we retain confidence, strong confidence in the safety profile of the vaccine. So, sorry, Chair, point of order. Sorry, point of order. Chair. I've asked, do you understand why it causes, I know that it's a low risk, I'm asking, do you understand why it causes myocarditis? I want you, I want you to explain to me why it causes myocarditis. Do you Pfizer, understand why it causes myocarditis? Pfizer is aware of very rare reports of myocarditis and pericarditis that have been temporarily associated with vaccination. Well, that's However, still ongoing for some people. Senator Reddick, Dr Theroux should answer the question. Thank you, Dr Theroux. According to public health experts and regulatory authorities around the globe, the number of reports of myocarditis remains small. I'm not referring to the number of reports. I want you to explain to me <laughs> the mechanism of how the vaccine causes myocarditis. Do you or do you not understand the mechanism of why the vaccine causes myocarditis? It looks to me like you don't. And if you don't understand it, why are you saying the vaccine is safe? without qualifying the risks. So, um, Senator Rennick, I think uh, Dr Theroux is actually about to get to that point. Whether people agree, whether there's agreement to his evidence or not is another question for others to make a judgment on. Um, but if Dr Theroux, if you could uh, again go to um, Senator Rennick's uh, question. Senator, uh, all medicines, all therapeutic products and vaccines have uh, benefits and have side effects as well. Looking at the totality of the evidence for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, uh, regulatory authorities, health authorities, experts globally, including in Australia, within the Department of Health and the TGA, have maintained that the benefit-risk ratio... That's not the question that I asked. I asked, can you explain why the vaccine causes myocarditis? Yes or no? Uh, Senator, the benefit-risk Yes or no? So you Even clearly don't understand the pathway, do you? Because you can't explain it. Does that infuriate you as much as it infuriates me, Nick? Was that a real person or was it AI? <laughs> it's, it's just, just the same responses you get out of chat yeah. GPT. Never answers your question directly. It always comes up with, you know, remember, you know, be cautious when assessing uh, climate figures because, you know, the world is warming, really. Or if, if Pfizer's not paying him, you know, half a million a year, there's probably a good career waiting for him in Australian politics, isn't there? He's, he's, look, you've got to, you've got to say the bloke stuck to, stuck to his talking points, yeah, didn't he? he? Did. I yes. guess that's what he was told to do when he went in. Hey, look, I, I, hats off to Senator Jared Rennick. He's one of the few people in the parliament that are, are trying to get to the bottom of this. Uh, it, it is a scandal. Uh, we don't know the size of that scandal yet. We don't know the full effects of it, but it is no no doubt at all. Uh, um, Self-evidently, the vaccines were rushed uh, and Pfizer were keen to get this new product into the market and have just covered up or refused to accept any any contrary information as to its safety. I mean, think what it would do if, if, if this came out, think what it would do to Pfizer, its profits, its, its value. Once you start along this track, there's no way you can pull back. Well, these, are, these companies are among the most heavily fined companies in history. You know, why, you know, Australian politics as a whole and most of Australian society, I've got to say, suddenly... Uh, threw their lot behind these companies that have a track record of just appalling, uh, seemingly um, deliberately calculated risks with other people's health. It's just mm. outrageous. I mean, the the thing, but the issue for people like you and I now, Nick, is what you know. What are what are we going to do? I mean, there was some calls. I think Alex Antich during the week was calling for a. a um, uh, Royal Commission, Phil Curry did the same thing in the Fin Review this morning. I, I, I'm convinced it's not going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, Royal, no. th there, are, there are sort of, you know, obstacles in the way because it has to be a comprehensive one. It has to involve all the state governments or as many state governments as possible, as well as the Commonwealth government, in which case all those governments have to agree on the terms of reference and on who sits uh, at the head of the Royal Commission. How are you going to get that to happen? That's impossible. And also... As everyone knows, every politician in the country, uh, well, sorry, in the two major parties, 
can't commit to this because it's going to throw their colleagues under the bus. I could probably, you know, if I was a betting man, I could probably put some serious money on the fact that there's never going to be a Royal Commission into this in Australia. And one of the things that Philip Coury said in the Fin Review, I think it was this morning, he said, you know, we need a, we need a, um, a Royal Commission to, uh, to make sure that we don't get it wrong next time. That sent a shiver down my spine. There's going to be a next time. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Philip Corey knows. <laughs> I, you're right. I, 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 there will be no royal commission. I'm totally yeah. pessimistic about it. And the first thing the government got in was declare royal commission into robo debt. Robo debt. Yes. Okay. All right. Robo debt is what a bureaucratic stuff up. Yeah. But on the scale of things, it's just you know it doesn't even go close to what we saw with COVID. Of yeah. course, of course, there needs to be a full reckoning. But nobody seems to want to do it. I, yeah. I, I think. Um, both major parties, though, should think hard about this because both parties lost uh, primary support. I mean, particularly the, the coalition lost 5% or 6% of its primary vote. They've got to ask where that went. And uh, I know, or a very strong sense at least, from um, that much of that was COVID reaction. So it was people either didn't, you know, were... were thrown out of jobs by job um, vaccine mandates or their businesses were put out, went, went, up, went to the wall because of heavy-handed government things or, you know, they were tear-gassed in the street or whatever. Or but weren't allowed to visit granny. Weren't allowed to visit granny, yeah. Home. And those people are not going to come back to the major parties readily. Mm. And, and this is why I think the Liberal Party uh, should be sensible and start looking how it can reach out to these people and say, look, we've learnt the lessons internally and uh, we won't do those things again. Well, it's good to hear you say that, Nick, because I know you're well-connected with the Liberal Party and I, I hope people in the Liberal Party are listening to well us. Well-connected but not necessarily listened to. For <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's get on to another uh, health hazard. This time, this is a health hazard that is lurking off our beaches. This is a grab from my show on Monday night. Let's have a listen. Well, we Australians used to be famous for the seafood we ate. Come and say good day. I'll slip an extra shrimp on the barbie for you. Come and say good day. Now we're more famous for the seafood that's eating us. <laughs> Waverley Council in Sydney, which oversees world famous Bondi Beach, wants the shark nets that have been protecting swimmers there for decades to not go in this summer. The Guardian reports, quote, Sydney's Bondi Beach could have its first summer without shark nets since the Second World War, as the New South Wales government weighs up whether to continue the controversial deterrence strategy. The nets are due to be in place at 51 beaches between Newcastle and Wollongong in less than five weeks. But the Minns government says it will not make a decision on whether the nets will be rolled out until it hears from eight coastal councils. And you thought the job of local councils was to fix the potholes and collect the rubbish. <laughs> what do you reckon, Nick? You're a regular down at Bondi? I mean, you say that you make a distinction between we used to be... Uh, we used to be famous for the seafood we eat, and now it's the seafood that eats us. But there's a there's a there's a crossover there, isn't there? I mean, we were in the west West Australia, um, a wonderful trip there in yeah. January, and I noticed that down the south coast, shark is big in the restaurant menus. In fact, <laughs> we went in one that had fish of the day and shark of the day. Oh. You know, you could actually choose. I don't know what it was, hammerhead or something. But it, so you know, we should. Well, we should... one of the arguments against catching uh, uh, great whites is that... Um, They're terrible eating. Well, supposedly, but I have it on good authority. So the, the, the case against eating great whites is that, you know, once they get to a certain size and age, they get a bit chewy and there's a lot of mercury in them because they've been swimming around long enough to accumulate mercury in the flesh. Mm. But... And uh, I'm happy to um, share this with our listeners as, as long as it doesn't go any further than us. <laughs> I have it on good authority from a friend in South Australia that if you catch them young, they taste like swordfish, which is a very wow. delicate, uh, you know, type of seafood. That's one of my favourite fish. Well, there you go. Grilled so, with a bit of garlic, lemon. Oh, oh beautiful. Yeah, well, can you imagine 
surfers queuing up for a bit of great white. I mean, I'd pay good money for that. Mm. But uh, yeah, the, but the thing about the ascent, the, the, the centre of this debate, Nick, is that now it's it's increasingly accepted that a shark's life is more valuable than a human's. Do you think that's well? It's certainly more valuable than a surfer's. <laughs> I wouldn't say humans broadly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. What about a pommy tourist down at Bondi? Well, well, but do you think, I mean, it's probably a minuscule effect on our tourism, to be brutally honest, but do you think the fact that there will be no shark nets at Bondi this summer, there possibly won't be shark nets at Bondi this summer, have some effect on tourists coming from example, from example, uh, from, for example, England, for a bit of, uh, you know... Well, it's, it's an incredibly reckless decision, isn't it? I mean, if, you know, God forbid, there is a, a shark attack on that beach this summer and they've deliberately not put the nets there, then they'll have, they'll have something serious to answer for. Yeah, yeah. They will have something very serious to answer for. I wouldn't want to be running the council that made that decision. So. Well, but, but the thing is that they are so sanctimonious. I mean, I've, I've been covering, as you know, I've been covering this for probably eight or nine years now. And the attitude of the people who advocate the protection of sharks, the attitude of them towards the loss of human life and human limbs is pretty much indifference. It's quite tragic. Mm. I'll ju just quickly explain what these nets do. They, they don't actually enclose the beach or anything. They're just like, it's like placing a, a, a mousetrap, you know, you know, along a wall. You know, if the, if the shark has the misfortune of swimming through this, this net, and it's a wide mesh, so small fish just swim through. If a shark swims through it, gets caught, you know, they're checked every three days, and three days later the, the guy comes along and finds a dead shark in it and, you know, gets disposed of. But here's the thing, Nick. Those things have been around since the 1930s in New South Wales and since 1962 in Queensland, and in that time there's only been two fatalities at, in each state at a protected beach. Uh, where those nets are in place. Now, this is the statistic that the supporters of shark conservation and the uh, opponents of shark nets um, never, never talk about. And so, you know, it's arguable. I mean, dozens of people have died where there is no protection in New South Wales and Queensland, and, and goodness knows there's been plenty in Western Australia and quite a few in South Australia. So those nets have actually saved a lot of human lives. Right? Yeah. That, that doesn't, that means nothing to these people as long as the sharks are being protected. Nobody is explaining why we need to protect sharks and what their, what the ideal population of them is, of New South Wales. Um, and the reason for that is that there's, uh, there's a, you know, a small industry in our research um, organisations and our universities that has grown up and that... That, uh, that has evolved and, and that people's careers rely on this protection remaining in place because uh, they get uh, government grants research. It's characteristic, isn't it, the environmentalist mentality that they're unable to make trade-offs at any point. It has to be absolutely this or, or nothing at all. So, you know, a sensible person would say, well, yeah, of course it's nice to protect the biodiversity in the water and so forth and whatever. But there has to be a trade-off at some point between, you know, human lives, human flourishing, saving lives, stopping yeah. stopping the tragedy of somebody losing a loved one or somebody losing a limb. Yeah. So, But they're not prepared to do that at any level. Uh, and this is what I've been covering in, at a different field up in far north Queensland where they're not prepared to make any trade-off between the so-called benefits of renewable in, in energy, you know, you know, I'm sceptical of those, and the need not to destroy the natural environment or destroy the, the natural biodiversity, you know, put the, put the greater glider out of yeah. its home. You know, they, they, they can't take in and measure those two things because it's an absolutist all-or-nothing philosophy. Yeah, and I've got to recommend viewers, uh, listeners, go to our website, adh.tv, and check out Nick's three, part, three parts of a documentary um, on his section of our website called Battleground. It is compelling. Uh, he has a. It makes a compelling story about how um, a rainforest or parts of a, a forest in high 
uh, what is it, wet tropical um, part of Queensland, mm. um, is being destroyed so windmills can be installed. Yeah, well, this is having some effect. I'm, I've been accused of being an agitator by oh. the Queensland, uh, by sorry, by the reneweconomy.com. I don't know reneweconomy.com. It's a sort of uh, pravda of the renewable energy, <laughs> energy, energy industry. It's always you know, presenting. But we've, we've made some impact up there. So, you know, it, it says, first of all, it draws attention to the fact that this has, hasn't had a lot of coverage, but the Queensland government is reviewing its uh, regulations for wind farms because uh, they were, you know, they're very easy to pass. They're, they're sort of a low bar and there's been a lot of community resistance. So they're, they're actually looking at those where they have to raise them. And, of course, the renewable energy uh, mob don't like this at all uh, and they they blame a campaign by people like myself the uh, it, there's been a debt they're talking about the chalumban wind farm which is the one i've been looking at uh, that the, there, there is a dedicated community group set up in opposition to it called stop chalumban wind farm and well-known anti-renewable politicians bob catter jared rennick and professional agitators most notably Nick Cater, oh, okay. have jumped on the bandwagon, <laughs> claiming this to be a battle of renewables versus nature and the traditional owners. So Jeez. dedicated is Cater to stopping the cause of Chalumban, he's travelled to Ravenso to report from the eye of the imaginary storm, tramping <laughs> through the bush to expose a wind turbine blade graveyard. And uh, they go on to say that they, this is being debunked. This wasn't actually a graveyard. They were just sitting there waiting and recycling. It, it's... Um, it is it is so easy to rattle their cage. They're, they're so used to having it all their own way. You start up a bit of a, uh, you start giving a bit of pushback, and the local ABC has been doing that too. And they get very brittle very quickly and well, start I've attacking con- it. I've got to congratulate you, Nick, being called a professional agitator. I just thought you were an amateur one myself, but uh, it's great, isn't it? I love it. Yeah. I love it. It's the best. Uh, I might put it on my business card. It's it's the best. <laughs> It's the best uh, compliment I've had since the socialist students at Melbourne University called me the mastermind of the Robert Menzies Institute. They put <laughs> posters up all around the campus. So I, maybe that should be Nick Cater, mastermind and professional agitator. Well, that, uh, that's, a, that's a title I aspire to. <laughs> um, I've been accused of, of hating sharks um, by a journalist, in fact. I actually... I reached out to him and asked him if he wanted a quote from me, but uh, he ignored me. Yeah, yeah, you have. Uh, I've noticed your hatred for sharks. There's yeah. been a lot of hate speech towards well, sharks, well, which we've right. got to clamp yeah. down on. Yeah, them. yeah. There's probably a, a subclause of Section 18C that would uh, could get me in jail for that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's move on from sharks, Nick, and talk about the sound of freedom. Now, this is this is sensational. It's, I think it's going to make the Barbie movie look like. Uh, you know, the piece of um, uh, candy-coloured fluff that it is. It's the movie, if you if the listeners haven't heard about it yet, about Tim Ballard. He was a US federal agent who resigned when he discovered children in South America being trafficked for pedophiles, uh, some of them winding up in the United States. And so he started his own organisation to rescue these kids, and he's rescued thousands of them. Um, the film has already grossed more than $100 million in the US. And there's an interesting story about how uh, the Disney Corporation actually owned the rights to the movie for some time and uh, was afraid to release it because, uh, you know, it involves the, um, the, the, uh, the aspirations or the, the behaviour of, of Christians who, uh, who were rescuing these kids and that's not the Disney... Uh, sort of mm. ethos these days. Anyway, the movie will be released here in Australia on August 24, and it should be uh, as successful as it's been in the US. But here's the catch, Nick. Australia has its own Tim Ballard. His name is Paul Murgard, and he appeared, get this, he, ex- he appeared exclusively on Lyle Shelton's show on ADH TV today. Let's have a listen. What Destiny Rescue does, though, is, you know, we've been operating for 22 years this year. We were founded on the Sunshine Coast. We operate in five regions around the world where we go into some of the darkest places on the planet to identify where children particularly are being trafficked and work with law enforcement to get those 
uh, children and adults uh, out to safety and then we get them on a pathway to freedom, helping them overcome the emotional and trauma abuse that they've suffered, uh, work on their health needs and then get them into either income generating opportunities or get them on educational pathways as well. And you know, so we've uh, now rescued around about 13,000 individuals since we started. Uh, this year, we've rescued 1,600 already. Wow. And uh, we are absolutely committed as an organization. We want to see 100,000 rescues, mm. 100, rescues by the end of the decade. Now, Murgard goes on to say that, that more than a million kids a year are trafficked into the sex trade. That's just horrifying statistic. And Nick, I've also held, heard elsewhere, not on this show, but I heard it on another podcast, that one of the reasons this trade is so lucrative uh, com in comparison to the nearest thing to it, which is the international drug trade, this is more lucrative because with drugs, you only get to sell your, your, um, the drugs once, mm. whereas... It's horrible to think of, isn't it? It is really horrible. It's and just horrifying, but yeah. You know, huge black mark for Disney's corporation. You know, you remember they mm -hmm. took up the fight against Ron DeSantis's uh, bill, which all what Ron DeSantis wanted to do was to remove sex education, particularly, you know, this, this weird transgender um, propaganda from schools in, uh, I think, grades one to five, wasn't it, or one That's to three. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that clearly is... Um, they took objection to that. They think it's okay to pollute kids' minds from grade, you know, from the age of five onwards with transgender ideology. They think that's fine. Yeah. So you can see why they might look at this and say, well, where's the harm in that? Yeah. You know, they, they well, just have no conception of protecting childhood innocence. And yet, that's what I thought Disney was supposed to be in the game of. Yeah. Well, indeed, that's their, that's their business model, mm. you would have thought. But this is there's a there's a, a a parallel here with the abolition of slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries, Nick, because it's Christians who are leading the way. Indeed, it is, isn't it? And, and this 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 absolute refusal to accept there's anything good about Christians or Christianity, you know, it's the same instinct that led to the taking over a Calvary Hospital and uh, in the ACT and those dreadful images of them. A cross being ripped off the top of it by some mm. bloody, you know, crane that had been sent in by some Canberra bureaucrat. Horrible, horrible. Um, but once again, I think you've made the point already that this this is people who lack any any sort of poetry or spiritual mm. uh, spiritual sensitivity in their lives, and I just frankly feel sorry for them. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up with a wonderful example of our Prime Minister's short memory. That's a Midnight Earl song that, uh, that he's been oh, familiar with. Yeah, this okay. is great. This is great. Well, yeah. let's, I'll, let, I'll hand this over to you. He said something to Patricia Carvelis. Well, yeah, Patricia Carvelis, uh, and elsewhere, but he, uh, of course in the um, – I've just I've got the uh, the quote right here, if you bear with me. In it, Last year, he's at Gama again. This this is And Gama is a sort of – Woodstock meets World Economic Forum for Aborigines. <laughs> if anybody's not familiar with it, I think that's a fair description. I'm not. I'm not being unduly harsh there. Uh, the, the, the the Prime Minister was there. Um, is there again? But last year when he was there, he said, and I'll say what he said there. He said, um, he said that uh, he he promised that he would grasp the hand of healing through the work of Makarata, treaty-making and truth-telling. And he spent most of this week trying to wriggle out of that statement. He, he, he yeah. went on Patricia Carvelis and said that, um, that no, there would be no treaty. There's nothing in the Uluru Statement about a treaty. So it's this refusal to own his own words is a bit of a problem for his own credibility. But it's one thing to deny something he said a year ago, but quite another to try and deny something he said 30 seconds ago. Have a well, listen to this okay, grab. Yeah, yeah, let's get this. This first grab is from uh, Albo on Ben Fordham's show just a couple of weeks ago. Let's have a listen. The idea. No, Ben, what what this is about. No, no, hang on. You've no, answered can, that. Can I've I, got a few more that I've got to get through. Can I make this point? Because I know where you're reading from. You're reading from the no pamphlet. I, I, I'm, no, I'm uh, not reading. Excuse me, Prime Minister. Well, that's I'm in the no pamphlet. I'm not reading. Excuse me. Well, that quote I'm is in the no pamphlet. Excuse me. 
Well, it is. I am not reading from the no pamphlet. I'm reading from my own questions that I have written. That I have written. Oh, it, 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 makes me, it makes me laugh almost as much as people are dying. But anyway, um, now Nick has picked up uh, what um, a lot of people fail to notice from that interview, which has been, you know, combed over by just about everyone. Nick has noticed that five minutes later in that conversation with Ben Fordham on 2GB, Albo said this. But Ben, what you're doing, and, and this is... Uh, I'm not reading from the no pamphlet. Part, We've established that. Part of? No. No, no, I'm not. No, I didn't say you were, Ben. I said... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Albo, I think you did. You did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so no, of course. Albo spent his whole life in politics. Nick, what does this say about Look, I th I think it shows him to be just unfit for the task of of bringing the nation with him, or, or really showing any serious leadership over, over as prime minister. You know, he he spent much of that interview, as he did with Carvelis, in a sort of no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Argument. Now that's no place for a prime minister to be, and it certainly won't win any arguments. It it reminded me of. Uh, we don't even need to play it because people remember it, that famous Monty Python argument sketch where Michael Palin goes in and says, is this the room for, the ar ar is this the room for an argument? John Cleese says, I've told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. No, you haven't. And they go hammer and tongs before uh, Palin says, um, uh, I've got it here. Palin, it, Palin says that, that just mere contradiction is not an argument. An argument has to be a series of logical statements that make a case for something. Exactly. <laughs> to which yes. Cleese says, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but that's the kind of argument we've been getting from Albanese. Well, it, makes and he's, wonder, he's, it makes you wonder what he's... I mean, Albo is forever flying overseas to meet his uh, counterparts from other countries and from globalist organisations. He must be putty in their hands, really. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think what it shows is he's not good under pressure. It's the first time, isn't it, we've seen him under serious pressure. You know, the, the honeymoon is over and he, well and truly over, and he's, this big signature thing he put forward is, is going down the screaming heap. He's under pressure and he doesn't react well to it. He hits out. He, he hits out. He, he had, uh, in question time, he had a bizarre attack on James Morrow this week, which was just peculiar. You know, why would he spend waste time, parliamentary time, getting stuck into a piece by blooming James Morrow. But he did. He's very, obviously very brittle when it comes to when things aren't going his way. And and I think this, this will cement the end of the voice. And in the end, it'll be the end of him as a prime minister, where sooner or later oh, people will tweak uh, to this. We're going to go through another leadership challenge. I think if, I think if Falbo finds himself uh, sort of under pressure uh, in whether it be in a radio interview or in uh, question time, just resort to the Nick McKim uh, technique and just say, people are dying. Shut your mouth. <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> I think on that note, we can wrap it up, Nick. It's been another great week here in Australia. We love, uh, we, we love our country. We love our politicians. And uh, best of all, we love Friday night because we're going to have a couple of beers and have a good laugh about it. And stay safe in the water, Fred. Um, thank you. And thanks to Martina in the control room for uh, keeping those great... We'll have to get Martina on next week. We should, yeah. Sure. She's been reading the news here at, uh, at ADH. So, um, yeah, have a look at our social media feeds. You'll see Martina giving us the daily news. Um, but that's it from me and Nick this week. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks.